discovering the mission of God. In particular, how do we be disciples as part of this incredible mission that God has launched since shortly after, in fact, before time began, but especially after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden? We've been looking for now several weeks at the battles that we are engaged in, battles between forces without, forces within ourselves. Uh, We basically identified three that I call enemies of Christians, the axis of evil. One is the devil or the Satan or the accuser. He really doesn't have a name. We sometimes call him Satan as if that's a name, but it simply means the accuser. And then we talked about the flesh, and we talked about the challenges of that part of us that sin has corrupted, that battles that part of us that God is trying to reclaim, and we've all experienced it. And then last week, we introduced the world. And uh, by the world, what I mean is not the created order, but as John would say in 1 John chapter 2, for everything in the world, and then he describes sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it does not come from the Father, but from the world. And, And we looked at the prayer of Jesus because being in the world is challenging. I mean, what do we do? Do we retreat from the world like some have done? Do we move into some type of monastery? Do we go out into the desert? Do we try to escape the world? And Jesus says, no. And and then on the other hand, do we just simply blend into the world and become like the world in some hopes of identifying with the world? And once again, Jesus would say, no. And the challenge is for us to be, as Jesus said, in the world, but not of the world, any more than he is of the world. And and he states the fact that the world hates us because we have been brought into his kingdom. And so he prayed for us. I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And the reason for that, simple, is because he sent us into the world. We're salt, we're light, we're hope, we're reconcilers. We're ambassadors. I mean, the language just goes on and on that's used in the New Testament to describe the call that Jesus has upon us to make a difference in this world that we live in. And so today we're going to continue to look at how the world impacts us and how we as Christians can protect ourselves from the world. And let me just tell you, this is a lesson that I desperately need. Because Satan... His attacks are so insidious sometimes. We just don't realize, you know, how much he is gaining territory in our lives. I'll talk about that more here in a moment. You turn over to Revelation chapter 11, and you have an angel describing what's happening in the world. And and here's an angel who's like, I mean, his voice literally sounds like a trumpet, and he shouts out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And put very simply, what this angel is saying is that when Jesus conquered death, ascended back to heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God, all authority was given to him. And Jesus began the process of taking the world that is in rebellion against him back into his authority. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the Ukrainian war. Uh, This is something that 
Ever since I was a teenager, I've always been fascinated by national conflicts. And, and so when Russia invaded Ukraine back in February, I, I was kind of captivated by that and wondered, you know, what's going to be the end result of this? And, and if you're not familiar with what has happened, Russia invaded Everyone thought Russia would literally take over Ukraine in, in the space of like two or three days. But it didn't happen. Ukraine had been preparing for that moment. And even though Russia made a lot of inroads and got almost to the capital of Kiev, they, they weren't able to take the country. And over the last several months, what's been happening is that Ukraine, with the help of the West, including the United States, they've been pushing Russia back. In fact, just Friday, they entered the, the city of Kherson. It's the only provincial capital that Russia had captured. And Russia saw that they were not going to be able to protect it, and so they pulled out, and the Ukrainians rushed in, and, and, and now they're trying to you know, turn the electricity back on and repair the water system and all of that. But, but as I think about what Jesus is doing, I think about that war. And the fact Jesus is doing the exact same thing. I mean, day by day, week after week, month after month, he's taking more and more territory back that, that Satan had, had taken over. Extending his authority into the world. Now, sometimes we look at America and we say, I, I just don't see that in America. Well, sometimes it, it happens for a while and then it wanes and God goes to more receptive hearts around the world. But it is happening, I promise you. And so we need to understand how this is taking place. And Revelation 12, 12 gives us a warning as he describes the war that was fought as Jesus went to the cross with Satan being cast out of his position of authority down to the earth. And then the warning is given. He says, listen, you need to be careful. Why? Because he has now come to the earth and he's filled with fury and he knows his time is short. And so we face a world that Satan is just filled with fury trying to hold back the onslaught of the kingdom of God as Jesus reclaims his own. John Mark Comer wrote a book called Live No Lies. A lot of the concepts I've been presenting have come out of this book. Uh, back last fall as I was thinking about this theme, I called a friend up. I said, you got any books you can recommend for me? And he said, yeah, you need to get John Mark Comer's book Live No Lies. And boy, what a marvelous book it is. I mean, it really takes a lot of thoughts and brings them together, all looking at the area of spiritual warfare. But John Mark Comer does something that's quite fascinating. He says, if you go back and look at the last 2,500 years of history, you see a fascinating pattern that developed. He says, first of all, you go back before the time of Jesus, and you have what he describes as the pre-Christian culture. Basically, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. I mean, those world empires that, you know, at the time of, you know, the known world of that time controlled. And then, of course, Jesus died on the cross. And Christians began to spread throughout uh, the Middle East, up into Europe, over into Asia, down into North Africa. And, and Comer described that as the Christianized culture. One thing he says that I agree 100% is oftentimes we describe America as a Christian nation. Biblically, there are no Christian nations except one called the kingdom of God. There are Christianized nations, in other words, nations where Christianity has had a tremendous impact. But y'all, the only kingdom that is the kingdom of God is the one that we're a part of right here. We need to be aware of that. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't support the nation we live in. 
doesn't mean that we don't do the best to influence that nation with Christ and Christian principles. Yes, we need to do that. But understand what, what we're dealing with here. But, but Comer goes on and says what we're experiencing now in America is what's called the post-Christian culture. And all you've got to have done is lived over the last you know, few years to see this taking place. Because what's happening is American culture is becoming less and less influenced by the Christian faith. In fact, more and more people, when you ask them what their religious beliefs are, simply says, I don't believe in anything. I am secular in nature. I've had people literally to say to me, whose families were Christian, I'm not Christian anymore, I'm secular. Which simply means that they don't even believe that there's a God, or if there is, they really don't care. And we see the rise of that group of people increasing rapidly. Now, is that happening here in Middle Tennessee? You know, the, what, what we call the, the belt buckle of the Bible belt? Not as quickly as other parts. But if you talk to people who are from the northwest or the northeast or, you know, along the coast, they'll oftentimes, you know, tell you that where I live, Christianity is not having the impact. Perhaps never did have the impact it did in the south. And so how do we respond to a post-Christian culture? And, and how does a culture move from being a Christian culture to a post-Christian? Christian culture. And what's fascinating is if you turn to the New Testament, especially the book of Romans chapter 1, Paul will describe not the move to a post-Christian culture, but a move to a post-godly culture. As Paul goes back and kind of reviews what the Bible says about creation and, and, and people who believed in God in the beginning and then moved away from God, and moved into idolatry, and then the result of that. Okay? And what you find in Romans 1 is this amazing paradigm that if you just take it and place it over America, you go, wow. That's what's happening to America. Number one on the list, you remove God from public consciousness. And we've seen that happening over the last, especially 50 to 60 years. You know, I mean, we start saying America is really a secular nation. We're not a Christian nation, and so we have to have prayer. We'll remove it from our public schools. We'll remove it from our graduation ceremonies. We'll remove it from our sporting events. We'll remove it, we'll remove it, we'll remove it. And we've all witnessed that. I mean, as, as there have been efforts to go so far as to remove simply of the list of the Ten Commandments from our courthouses. And oftentimes anybody who's knowledgeable of history knows the role of the Ten Commandments in, in the legal system. And we see that happening in the New Testament. Notice what Paul says of the Gentiles. He said, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened and they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And so what you have is a culture that says, you know what, we're simply not going to believe in God anymore. And as a result of that, the thinking becomes darkened because it's God who created us and it's God who can inform us of what he wants us to do. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Israelites face the same problem. Moses here describes how blessed they were. He says, listen, you're fixing to go into the land that God swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to cities you didn't build. You're going to houses you didn't construct. You're fixing to have vineyards you didn't plant. 
orchards that were given to you by God. And you're going to find yourself blessed tremendously. And then notice what he says. But be careful. Because when you're blessed, you tend to forget. And we all know that. Have you ever had a serious health problem? I mean, found yourself in the hospital facing surgery that you weren't sure you were going to live through? And then, of course, you go through it, and then you've got the long recovery. And one of the things you very quickly realize when you go through something like that is how good you had it when you were healthy and you didn't realize it. I mean, every time I end up in the hospital, I'm reminded of how blessed I was when I wasn't in the hospital, right? And in so many ways, that's what happens with us with God. I mean, we sit there and, 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 and we have it so good that we just forget that God is the one who has blessed us. And we need to remember that. In fact, if you go on in Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, 9, over and over again, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Why? Because that's what we're prone to do. I do it. And I suspect you do too. Which is why you have constant reminders. There is a God. And that God has made himself available to you. I love this song of David, Psalm 19. And we all, we, we sometimes sing it. I mean, it's this beautiful poem. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. He's fixing them to play kind of a, a, a parody on this. He says, it's constantly speaking, but you can't hear it. Okay, you can only see it. Notice what he says. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, it reveals knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice, you see the irony there. I mean, how can you have a voice if you have no speech? Again, it's, it's, it's poetry. Their voice goes out to all the world, their words to the ends of the earth. And what David was simply saying is, is that if, if you'll just go out and look up, you'll see the existence of God. I don't know if you saw this here about two or three weeks ago, but this came out. This is from the new James Webb telescope. And it's a picture of what's called the pillars of creation. First photograph by the Hubble Space Telescope, okay? And then they said, Let, let's give you a better picture of it. And this one came out. And you look at it and you just go, wow. And of course, why scientists would call it the pillars of creation. Think about where that language came from. Just kind of tells you that even scientists, when they look through these telescopes, go, Something is going on here that science cannot explain. And how true that is. So first of all, you remove God from public consciousness. Number two, we exchange God for a lie and replace him with gods of our own creation. One thing that's fascinating about the way God made us is that he made us to experience himself. Now, I know that there's, uh, for those who are in Hebrew, that there's some discussions as to how to uh, translate this. Uh, but, but here's how at least the NIV translated it. He has made everything beautiful in its time, Solomon says. He's also set eternity in the human heart. There is something about life that makes us look for something outside ourselves. Now, he goes on to say, but, but while we look for that which is out our, outside ourselves, we'll never fully comprehend God. And, of course, we all know that. But there is something in every one of us says there's got to be more than life than what we're experiencing. 
There's got to be something on the other side of death. There has to be. Otherwise, none of this makes sense. And so Solomon says, that's because God, he's put something in us that, that the translators use the word eternity for to say there's something there that points you to God. And yet, what do we do? Paul says we exchange the truth about God. We exchange it for a lie and we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. In other words, he says, we forget God, we remove God from our consciousness, but we have to fill that hole, that, that sense of eternity with something. And so what do we do? We turn to other things. Ancient Israel turned to other gods. We'll see that here in a moment. But what do we turn to? Isn't it interesting that we actually call this the almighty dollar? Isn't that fascinating? I mean, think about the number of people who think if you just make enough money, make enough money, make enough money. Now, I'm not here to defend Bill Gates. But Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, you know, the one who gave us so much of, of what we do at our computers. Bill Gates got so rich that for many, many years, the richest man in the world, billions and billions and billions of dollars, but he came to a point in his life that says, is making more money really what life is all about? And he set up the Bill Gates Foundation, and for the last several years, even though morally he's got issues that, let's just say that all of us have to be honest with ourselves, so do we. But Bill Gates has said, if I can just take what I've made and maybe eradicate polio, maybe get rid of malaria from taking so many children's lives, if I can just get rid of this disease and that disease, and, and why? Because even Bill Gates realizes that at some point in time, money simply will not fill that sense of eternity in us. Family. We're coming up to the family season of the year, right? We're talking right now. When are the kids, the grandkids coming in? When are we celebrating you know, Christmas? When are we getting together? What about Thanksgiving? All those things are coming up. The season of the family. But here's the challenge. God created the family. But, but anytime I do premarital counseling, one of the things I try to say to a couple is that you've got to make a decision right on the front end, who's going to be first in your life? Is it going to be God or is it going to be family? Now, if you ask the average person who is, is facing death, you know, are there certain things you regret in life? The answer will be, I wish I'd spent more time with family. I get that. I love my, my, my family. I, I love June. June was sitting beside me earlier. Where in the world did she go? Where? Oh, right here. She moved over here. Okay. Man, I thought, she's gone again. You know. She moves around during services now, y'all. So if you see her crawling under a pew to get to another spot, just stop her. All right. You know, June and I have been married a long time. And she's my best friend. But I've got to put God first. I've got to do that. Now, do I always? No, I don't. And it's usually not that I put her first, I put myself first. But I love my wife. I love my kids. I mean, those of us who have grandkids, there's a reason they call them grand, right? I mean, we love our family. But if you take your family and you put your family before God, Jesus says you can't do that. And we do that sometimes. And we make the most precious gift God gives us into the ultimate gift instead of him. We live in a world of entertainment. I mean, you can go on cruise ships and surf now. 
I mean, you know, people are like, wouldn't you like to do that? And my answer is the same as always. No. Man, last place I want to die is on a cruise ship. But boy, you think about people who look at this and are like, isn't this awesome? Yeah. And you can make it a God if you're not careful. And then sports. And, and y'all, can we just be honest that we become a society driven by sports? I mean, whether it's pro football or college football, whether it's baseball or whether it's basketball. I mean, I mean I'm sitting here looking at our culture, and I'm like, we just finished the World Series. Basketball's already going. Of course, I won't pay attention to it till we get to near the finals. Football's in full steam. June and I both love football. I mean, we love to watch the games, and we do. And yet, if we're not careful, does it become so precious that it's like that gold medal won, you know, at the Olympics? This is what I've lived my life for. Really? I mean, do we fill our lives, our kids' lives with so many sports that we forget about God? Joshua would challenge his generation this way. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose. You chose the gods of your fathers on the other side of the Euphrates, the gods of the Amorites and whose land you live in. But you get to the end and Joshua said, but as far as me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Now there's something that comes into play there that's so important and we're going to look at that next. Because number three, we exchange God's plan and purposes for our lives, for our own shameful lust. We need to be very honest here. We need to be very real here. God is love. I mean, that, that's the essence of who God is. But he's agape love. Uh, he's, he's a type of love that says, I love you because I created you, and I want you to love me because of the very same reason. It's a love that begins up here and then moves to the heart. It's not in the heart first. I mean, it doesn't begin here. It's, it's not an emotion first. It's a decision first. And that agape love is the greatest of the commandments, Jesus said. And so it, it's the one that we use to filter everything else. But what we oftentimes do is we don't filter our lives and our, our desires through God. We, we filter them through our own hearts and they end up becoming lust. That's why John said everything that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is part of the world. Why? Because it's not being filtered through your love for God. Because you see, when you filter everything through the love of God, you have to make some hard decisions. Because God said, I've designed you a certain way and I want you to live a certain way. And man, I struggle with that. In my own life. I think probably all of us do. Romans 1, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Same way men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Notice the prominence of the word lust there. And, and, and what's happening in our culture is we've taken that word lust and we've substituted the word love. Now, desire can be filtered through love. It can if that love begins with our love for God and a respect for how he's created us to express love in every, every other aspect of our lives. But it needs to be through God's filter. And our problem is, is that we get that out of sorts. He goes on, and, and if you're sitting there going, yes, 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 let me tell you something. Look at yourself, because if you don't struggle with this one, I promise you, you struggle with one of these. Because Paul goes on and he says, our desire, our lust, takes us off in so many crazy directions. They have become 
the Gentiles, filled with every kind of wickedness and evil. Notice the first one on the list, greed. You know what I like to call greed? I like to call that investments. You know, for the future. Take no thought for tomorrow, Jesus said. And I'm like, well, Jesus, are you sure? I mean, so oftentimes we, we find every way under the book to disguise some of the problems we have. He goes on to depravity. He said they're full of envy. I mean, man, I wish I could live in that subdivision. I wish I could drive that car. They're full of murder. June and I live one and a half miles from a place Friday night where somebody was shot. Metro came to 3 o'clock in the morning. They fenced it off right in front of the Kroger there in Madison. They fenced it off with police tape. The person who had been shot was taken to the hospital. They're sitting there trying to figure out what happened when a man walks under the tape and starts walking with his hands in his pocket toward a police officer. Police officer said, sir, would you take your hands out of your pocket? Sir, remove your hands from your pocket. And he pulls them out with a pistol and starts shooting at three of Metro police officers. And they kill him. They kill him right there a mile and a half from our house. Saturday morning, I pass by and I'm looking at all the police tape going, I wonder what happened last night. And that's the culture we live in. Strife, deceit, malice, they're gossips. Well, that's one we don't usually think of as being in that list, right? Slanders, God-haters. Why? Because they don't want God interrupting their life. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. And then just to make sure he's going to get all of us, Paul said, and by the way, some of them disobey their parents. You ever been around a campfire when people started talking about all the things that they hoped their parents one day would never find out? You ever been around that? I mean, if you're like me, you have, and you've told your own stories. You know, I've oftentimes said, I don't know what my boys did as teenagers. I suspect one of these days when I'm in a nursing home on my deathbed, they say, Dad, we need to tell you some things. And as soon as they do, I'm going to say, I knew it. I knew it. And I knew it because I did the same thing. We all do things we're not proud of. And Paul just wanted to make sure we all looked inwardly before we look outwardly. So where does a culture go when it heads down that pathway? Isaiah 5, verse 20. Isaiah speaks to his culture of his day because they were going the same direction. Israel was moving away from God so fast. And, and, and Isaiah is saying, here's the stuff that they're doing. And, and notice how he describes it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And, and notice that first word there, woe. And, and, and when you see that word, you think, wow. I mean, I, I didn't grow up on, on a farm. I didn't grow up with, for instance, plow animals. My dad did. My dad would oftentimes talk about some of the mules they had when he was a teenager growing up and the fact that, you know, they had all the different commands for the mules. But I do know which, what the word woe means. Because woe simply means stop right where you're at. Woe. And yet there's another meaning to it. How many times have you heard someone say, woe is me? And it's not so much stop as much as it is deep grief. And so the question is, which of these describes God? And I expect the answer is both. Stop, because what you're doing is so grieving me. 
Bob Russell, who is preacher at Southeast Christian Church or Southeastern Christian Church in Louisville for many, many years, uh, he, he wrote an article called The Sin of Approving uh, Sin. And he says, Christ followers are challenged not only to resist evil desires, but we are admonished not to give approval to those in, who indulge in depravity. In other words, he says, listen, it's not enough that you're not doing it. Are you giving approval, even if it's just simply by not challenging those who are involved in it, are you giving approval to sin? And Paul, if you go over to Romans chapter 1, he says, not only are the Gentiles doing these things, but they approve of those who practice it. And that's one of the challenges I think all of us face, is, is not only do we get caught up in some of these sins, but then because we're caught up in it, we approve others who are caught up in it. And we see that happening all over our country. And I see it happening in my own life. I mean, when do we say, uh-uh, I can't do that. And so how do we get, safeguard ourselves? We safeguard ourselves from promoting evil by understanding how it happens. And, and here's what's fascinating about that. There, there was a guy who wrote, Alexander Pope. Alexander Pope was a religious man. Uh, he, he was a philosopher. And he wrote in the early 1700s, okay? I mean, we're talking about now over 300 years ago. But he wrote an essay called An Essay of Man, which, which describes what happens to all of us if we'll just be honest enough to stop for a second and look at it. Notice what he says, and, and he uses some old English here, so be aware of that. He says, vice is a monster of so frightful men. Men there, I had to look up what that meant, uh, Blake. I, being from Mississippi, I, didn't, I thought they misspelled men. But it wasn't. The idea is culture, situation. Uh, I, my, vice is a monster of so frightful a situation. He says, as to be hated needs be, but be seen. And how many times have we seen something that we hated? I mean, the first time we saw it, we're like, no, that's wrong. And so right off the bat, we hate it. But notice what he says next. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face. In other words, the walls begin to come down. We're exposed to it enough that now it doesn't seem so bad. In fact, is it bad really at all? And of course, you've got to realize when he's writing, these early 1700s. And here's the last line of his poem. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. I think about something as simple as television. I mean, when Gone with the Wind came out and, you know, you had this movie that had a curse word in it. Boy, don't, doesn't that seem tame now? I mean, now, I don't know how you get your television, but I mean, it's just filled with profanity nonstop. I mean, even in cartoons, even in programs where you're like, seriously? needs to have this kind of language here. And y'all, that's just a mild example. And yet, we get so used to it that, I mean, I don't know how many times June and I have walked out of a movie and June said, well, wasn't that many curse words in that one? And I go, I didn't hear any. And she said, oh yeah, don't you remember this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene? And I'm like, wow. I've become so accustomed. I don't even notice anymore. And that's why the challenge is for all of us. Eli Wiesel, who was a survivor of, of the Holocaust, 
uh, human rights guy for a long, long time. You've probably heard his name. A friend of his wrote an article in Reader's Digest, November of 1987, and told the story that Eli, oftentimes, she said she would hear him tell. And it's a parable simply about ancient Sodom. A just man comes to Sodom hoping to save the city. He pickets. What else can he do? He goes from street to street, from marketplace to marketplace, shouting, men and women, repent. What you're doing is wrong. It will kill you. It will destroy you. They laugh, but he goes on shouting until one day a child stops him. Poor stranger, don't you see it's useless? Yes, the just man replies. Then why do you go on, the child asks. In the beginning, he says, I was convinced that I would change them. Now I go on shouting because I don't want them to change me. And that's why we keep on going. We do hope we can change them. But we sure don't want to be changed by the world. Bob Russell would say this, instead of embracing what God calls evil, or being intimidated into silence, let's emulate Jesus who is full of grace, because can we be honest, we all need grace, where we fall short, and then truth. And I love the way he stated that, grace, and then truth. And then that truth is always bringing people back to God's grace. And so how do we live in the world? We take a stand. We can take a stand of, of, of working to rid our own lives of, of the sin we're guilty of. You know, trying to stay as well as, as best we can from being drugged into the ways of the world. I think should be dragged, but uh, I, don't, I don't know my English good enough. But dragged into the ways of the world. And at the same time, trying to stand up and say to the world, there's a truth that God's given us. We want to call you to that truth. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're in need of God's initial grace through faith and, and baptism. If that's where you are, boy, we invite you to come. Join the journey with us. It may be that you've been struggling with this old world. It's been pulling you in. and Boy, you want to take a stronger stand. If you need our prayers, we're happy to pray for you. It may be that you just need to make a personal commitment to God. I'm going to do better. And then let God's Spirit work in your life to do that. Whatever the need is, boy, let God's Spirit move you right now to obey His calling upon you. As together we stand and sing.